Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Each week, we'll discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week. The only caveat is the film must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We'll also be highlighting new additions to the collection, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. I'm Mackenzie, and this is my co-host, Ian. Hello. Hello, and this week we are discussing Spine number 230, 1977's Three Women, directed by Robert Altman. Ooh, very excited. <laughs> As featured in your top 10 list yeah. from two weeks ago. Yeah, no, we did. Uh, I got to pick the first movie. It was uh, one of my top 10, and then you came in with a hot pick right <laughs> off of my top 10 as well. I mean, it's always, it's the movie that is quite literally, I feel like always said in the same breath as Persona. So it just felt like the most obvious connection to, to make and to, and I'd never seen it and I really wanted to see it. So it was like, now's the time. Yeah. It was either going to be this or Mulholland Drive. And as you said on your <laughs> last episode, you'd already seen that five times. So let's start off with something new. Exactly. And I, you know, it's so funny. I did kind of get the hankering to watch it, but I was like, I'll save it. I'll save it. Cause we'll do it one day and that'll be the moment. Um, but I do want to ask, did you watch anything on the channel this week? I watched a couple different things on the channel this week. A couple things that I'll highlight. Um, I watched Chantal Ackerman's first film, uh, mm. director most known these days for topping the sight and sound top 200 list or top 100 list. I'm not sure what they go to on that list. That one would be uh jean dealman but i watched her first film that's j2 il l and um it's basically the story of a woman suffering a subdued mental break after a really nasty breakup and it's very slow moving i had a little trouble staying awake in the middle portion but mm -hmm. i found it to be very moving and it's something i'll definitely revisit in the future because i want to come in I kind of find that like with these older movies and these really like slow paced films, they're almost better for me upon a second viewing because I know what to expect and I know where the lulls are going to be and I can kind of pay closer attention when I go through it a second time. So I watched that, but the one I'd rather actually give the big spotlight to is an exclusive streaming premiere for the Criterion channel. It's not in the collection and it might be in the future, but it's the debut feature from a Costa Rican slash Swedish filmmaker. I hope I get this right, but her name is Nathaniel Alvarez Messen, and it's from 2021. It's called Clara Sola, and I only watched this last night, 
and I gave it four out of five stars and a big fat heart. It's a beautiful story of like a middle-aged Costa Rican woman going through a late in life sexual awakening and about her relationship to the natural world around her. She lives in this remote Costa Rican village and her domineering mother has kind of propped her up as like a saint in the community uh, because of uh, her mental incapacities and also a physical deformation. And she's kind of, you know, done the thing that we see uh, done in, you know, certain communities where that's like turned into like a blessing from God. Uh, but because of that, uh, she's highly repressed and tightly constricted by her mother. And it's mm-hmm. really just about her trying to break free from that and discover who she really is and what she really wants. And it also weaves in this really interesting relationship that she has with the natural world. And so it's like both about this sexual awakening that this woman is going through. Her name is Clara. And, um, also just i saw like a lot of like allegorical storytelling about humans relationship to the natural world i'm still really scatterbrained on what i thought of it but i loved it a lot and i highly recommend it uh nathaniel alvarez is a really amazing filmmaker and she's got a lot to say i think we can expect great things from her but mackenzie were you able to catch anything on the channel I did. I feel like this show is like forcing me to use my Criterion channel subscription and make sure I don't waste it. We love to see Um, it. And I'm definitely trying to find things that are not in the collection to highlight. Uh, And today I watched The Hitchhiker, which is on the collection 1953, also directed by a woman, Ida Lupino, who a lot of people know as a pretty famous old Hollywood actress. Um, We may one day discuss her uh, starring alongside my man, Humphrey Bogart in High Sierra, which is in the collection. So she's a really wonderful actress in her own right. And I watched this really interesting video on TCM's YouTube channel that I super recommend that was getting into um, her as a director. And I had never heard that she was a director. And obviously there were very few female directors, especially in the 50s and even before. And um, at one point she ended up taking over, the story kind of goes, she took over directing a film because uh, she was helping run a um, independent production company with her husband at the time. They like started because they wanted to make small budget indie films that were dealing with social issues. So they were kind of this just like early indie company. And the director of their first feature had to drop out because he got sick like three days into shooting. So she took over the film. And uh, that was sort of how she got into directing. And then she went on to direct these movies about like... Um, unwanted pregnancies uh the fear of of rape and assault that a lot of women experience like really like intense taboo themes for the 40s and i was just really just fast i was like wow this is cool and i noticed one of her her biggest her probably most popular film the hitchhiker was on the criterion uh channel i was like i gotta check this out it is a tight 70 minutes i love a movie that knows how to get in and get right back out and it is based on a true um, killing spree that happened of a guy who was being picked up in cars as a hitchhiker and killing a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of this like very intimate, frenzied three-hander of the two men that are in the car and the guy who was trying to kill them and like the mistake they make in picking him up. And then they kind of were stumbling into this road trip movie with him because he is using them to basically get to a boat in and like the southern part of mexico to escape the country and escape um 
the law since he's been murdering a bunch of people and it's it's really amazing i mean i think it's just cool that like it's it's thought of as the first like film noir directed by a woman um i thought it was just really cool like to see her sort of visual her 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 the way she was attacking the visuals and creating tension like it's a hard thing i think to create tension for like basically 60 straight minutes like an hour straight uh, and I think she did a really good job with it. I don't know. I just was like really impressed that like this movie exists and that it was cool and Ida Lupino did it. Um, so if you're an old Hollywood person, you're getting into it. Uh, maybe you like noir. Maybe you like heisty kind of vibes. Um, I recommend The Hitchhiker. I thought it was really, really cool. Yeah, this looks really cool. Or maybe you're like <laughs> me and you've made a uh, out of nowhere commitment to watch more films directed by women this looks awesome Same. yeah this looks great it's just the letterbox log line is really captivating a fishing trip takes a terrifying turn when a hitchhiker they pick up turns out to be a sociopath on the run from the law <laughs> sounds gripping the guy playing the killer is so scary like he has a really scary face i have no offense to that man that actor <laughs> but he is able to channel this like creepazoid energy like nobody's business um and yeah and like the, the two main guys i think that as the film gets goes further and their like desperation grows more to get away from this man it, it gets really compelling and uh yeah i thought it was really cool i was like all right get, go criterion channel i've also sort of made an arbitrary goal for myself to watch more films directed by women and i went through and like created a tag for myself so that i could keep track of how many films directed by women i'm watching and um also sort of tracked how many i had watched last year so i can maybe improve on how many movies i watched directed by women so this was a great opportunity yeah I, not to catch you off guard or put you on the spot but speaking of films directed by women that are on the criterion channel uh, i saw you logged losing ground Okay, yeah, I was going to talk about that, and I saw you also logged it, and I was like, what? I love lo Losing Ground. I watched this last year. What'd you think of it? I thought it was good. I didn't, I think that it sort of fell into the pitfalls of, like, what sometimes 80s, or even, like, 80s, 70s indie cinema can, where the performances weren't quite there for me, mm -hmm. um, but I thought it be it looked beautiful. Um, I thought, like, the directing I loved. I loved the script. I like my favorite part is I think the last half of it, the last even third of it, where it sort of becomes this like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolfie mm -hmm. kind of thing where it's like, we are an unhappy couple and we're going to make it everyone's problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I dug it. And I, I really was interested in that because of the story. Um, won't go into it too much, but for those who don't know, Kathleen Collins is the director of this film. Um, she died very young in her forties, a couple years after this film came out. And it never got a theatrical release. And it would have been a really groundbreaking thing for a Black woman to have a feature-length drama in theaters um, of this caliber. And it just never happened. And a couple years ago, her daughter had it restored. And now we can all enjoy it. Um, and it is in the Criterion Collection. Can I, ooh, Criterion Channel. That's all the different Criterions, the connections, yeah. the collections, the channels. We've got a mouthful over here. <laughs> but no, it's. I thought it was good. I thought it was good. I gave it three stars. Didn't like fall head over heels over it but i i do think that like i appreciate that it exists and i think it's i think it's really cool yeah i gave it three stars in a heart as well I, I really liked it but you're right there is some there is something wanting out of certain performances but yeah no great film i was happy to see you logged it <laughs> yeah i know i noticed you did too and while we're here by the time you're hearing this a little over under a week ago uh the march announcements happened for the criterion collection these are going to be the films that are coming out in june but these are some new additions 
I'll list them and then we can discuss if you'd like. Yes, please. So new additions to the collection is our newly minted spine 1182, which is 1963's The Servant by Joseph Losey. And the newly minted spine number 1182, the debut of the great Barry Jenkins, Medicine for Melancholy from 2008, as well as, I think a lot of people know about this by now, the Pasolini 101 new box set that mm-hmm. is going to be, a, I believe, a nine-film box set of uh, Pasolini's films, two of which, Teorama and Mama Roma, are both in the collection already, but films like, I'm going to butcher this, Acatone? Do I sound Italian? I don't know. Acatone. <laughs> uh, Love Meetings, The Gospel According to Matthew, The Hawks and the Sparrows, Oedipus Rex, Porchile, I assume, and Medea are all coming to the collection for the first time. No spines, but they are going to be in this box set. And then Terry Gillum's Spine Number 37, Time Bandits, and Spine Number 216, The Rules of the Game, the iconic Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir, are both coming to 4K. So lots of big, fun stuff this month. Yeah, no, lots of great stuff. Uh, they are continuing their Terry Gillum kick. We seem to be getting a Terry Gillum restoration of a film that's already been in the collection, like every announcement date uh, over the past <laughs> couple months, which is great. Um I, I'm super excited for this Medicine for Melancholy film um, yes. from Barry Jenkins. I know you and I have both seen Moonlight, and we love that movie. Um, you know, the only other thing I could really say about these is this Pasolini 101 box set looks freaking gorgeous. I've never seen any of his films. Uh, they frankly frighten me a little bit. Uh, I think uh, most of that is coming off the coattails of Solo um but this looks gorgeous i'm super excited to see some of these hopefully uh get spotlighted on the channel with these new restorations um i don't know do you have anything to say about these Mackenzie? i mean yeah the the pasolini art is gorge Uh, i've never seen one of his films but because i I agree i am (laughs) am nervous about them but the the art is gorgeous and uh yeah i'm i definitely am most excited for medicine for melancholy maybe when this hits in june we'll have to like get it in there somehow because i would love to watch this and but you know it's weirdly i maybe i'm even interested in the servant because i have no idea what it is and i've never heard of it um the one thing i recognize from it is that it's written apparently by harold pinter who is a pretty famous playwright and i studied a lot of his plays including probably my favorite from him um trail in college and so i'm a big fan of pinter's writing it's very specific the pinter pause is very iconic of he has a lot of weird uh kind of punctuation in his writing um so i'm mostly interested to see like what is his kind of writing like on screen and yeah i've never heard of the servant so i'm excited to check it out really i was just looking at the criterion blurb and the last half of the last sentence from the criterion blurb has got me hooked it just says a tour de force of mounting psychosexual menace and if anybody ever wants to get me interested in a film they just got to add in the word psychosexual and i'm like sign me (laughs) up one of my favorite movies is possession from Mm. the 1980s and that is like the pinnacle of psychosexual horror i just i find i find the portrayal of like psychosexual human desire to be one of the most fascinating things you can put on film so i'll definitely be checking this out hopefully the channel puts it up when they release it on disc 
Yeah. Now, Harold Pinter is very psychosexual. Betrayal, which I love from him, is a really kind of messed up play about, like, the relationship. It's like a weird love triangle, but not in a good way. It's like a hate triangle almost. And some, it's very, it's about this couple and a, and a, and a man and, like, a, a mutual friend of theirs and the way that those dynamics um, change and affect each other and the jealousies and the heartbreak. And it's, it's like, written chronologically backwards. So you, like, experience Ooh. the end of their story and then you move forward. It's... Uh, yeah, I feel like Harold Pinter very much fits into that psychosexual menace vibe. That sounds no, that sounds great. I'm excited. Oh, also rules of the game. Really want to see oh, that. Yeah. Uh, client at my work recently. I work for a place we do ads, digital ads for a lot of nonprofits, and and I work for a film house, and they just showed rules of the game, and I was looking at all these ads, and I was like, I want to watch this movie. It kind of reminds me of other films that have come out recently, where it's like rich people hunting humans possibly i think that's kind of the vague like idea i got from the the blurbs of rules of the game um so i'm very interested to see kind of the og of it because it's from 1939 yeah no this is probably gonna look amazing in 4k um yeah yeah, i've never seen it never seen a gene renoir film i know you've seen grand illusion and i don't know if you've seen anything else by him that's him yeah i didn't know that was him wow okay (laughs) what is that spy number one it's literally spine number one. It, there was a there was a short period in my life where I said I'm gonna watch all of them in order, and I watched <laughs> and I watched Grand Illusion, and then immediately saw Seven Samurai looking me down the barrel, and I panicked. Oof. Which I did watch. I did watch Seven Samurai. Um, but yeah, it's I still good. Haven't it's seen it's it. spine, spine number one. This is the perfect podcast because we're gonna we're gonna force ourselves to check out these directors we've never seen. Yeah, not every week's gonna be three women. We're both just frothing at the mouth. to talk about the movie but we're always gonna have fun but yeah no i'm excited for these these look awesome well speaking of frothing at the mouth i think it's time we get into three women right oh boy yes In a dusty, underpopulated California resort town, a naive southern waif, Pinky Rose, idolizes and befriends her fellow nurse, the would-be sophisticate and thoroughly modern Millie Lamoureux. When Millie takes Pinky in as her roommate, Pinky's hero worship evolves into something far stranger and more sinister than either could have anticipated. Featuring brilliant performances from Spacek and Duvall, this dreamlike masterpiece from Robert Altman careens from the humorous to the chilling to the surreal resulting in one of the most unusual and compelling films of the 1970s, Robert Altman's Three Women. Sorry, this has nothing to do with the movie. I cannot believe the Criterion writer, whoever wrote this, put a thoroughly modern Millie reference into the blurb, <laughs> like the 1967 movie with with Julie Andrews. I don't know um, what, that, what is this. What I don't. I'm completely ignorant. It's, well, 
I know it mostly from a musical. There was a musical that came out. I'm looking it up now in like early 2000s, 2002. I think it won Best Musical, the Tony Awards, starred my my queen, Sutton Foster. And it's it's kind of just like a the original movie and the musical. It's just about like a, a kind of girl who's like a ray of sunshine named Millie. And she's a modern flapper. And it's like about like a girl in London in like the 50s being a flapper kind of. I don't know. It's 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 a lot. <laughs> Um, not the fifties, the thirties probably. Um, yeah. So I just was like thoroughly modern Millie. You're making a thoroughly modern Millie reference criterion. I love it. <laughs> well, Mackenzie, I know this was a first yes. watch for you. So like this initial was. impressions, what did you think of this? I mean, I, you know, I'd seen Robert Altman movies before. I think the first one I watched of his was the, Go- the long goodbye. And I liked that a lot. And then I forget, I watched the player, which I think I have at four stars, but it, it was fine. It didn't like rock me as much. Um, I know you don't feel this way, but I loved Nashville. I really, really loved Nashville. And so like, he's kind of a, he's like, I'm a mid to love on him. Like as a director, I've, I've yet to see Altman that I don't like, like in some way. And Three Women was always recommended to me, and it was this kind of white whale I've been chasing. And I think that much like with Persona and with Mulholland Drive, like it is a movie that I expect to grow on me because I did feel, I did leave feeling kind of confounded after this first watch. I know. I I was dreading coming here and telling you this. I've been scared all week. I did, me and Rachel watched it with me, and we both were at it by the end of it being like, what the, what did you just watch? (laughs) Which is a kind of, I know that like a lot of people don't love that feeling. I think that's a fun feeling to like, just be like, what the fuck did I just see? Um, but it, it it's funny because much like with Persona and Mulholland, as soon as I like looked up a video or read a little bit about it, I was already seeing myself like it more, if that makes sense. Like both of those films were films I did not like on first brush. And then I, or, you know, I liked enough on first brush. And then the more I dug into them, the more I discussed them, which is a reason why I've been so excited to come here today. And the more I read and watched them and then rewatched them, they landed better for me. So like, I'm already anticipating that three women is going to be a film that like grows with me over time with more watches. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think it was more dense than I was ready for. I guess I, I, I maybe made assumptions about it. I maybe hyped it up too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like what I was expecting in some senses and then not what I was expecting in others. So I, I'm not sure. I hate to be this, this boy, but I feel like this will be another, like, I don't know how to rate this kind of movie. Oh, no. Um, because I, I, I'm so kind of woo about it right now. Yeah. Um, but I know mm. you loved it. So like, what is your, what is your, what have been like, what was your initial impression? And then what made you like love this movie so instantly? Yeah. Um, so before I go too deep into that, I do want to defend myself a little bit and say I do not dislike Nashville. I am mid on it. And so I am similar to you. I am mid to love on almost all of Waltman's filmography that I have yet to see. Three Women was the first movie of his that I came to, though, where I was just like, whoa, um, I love this. This thing's like really incredible. It's just so dense and packed. And, you know, you kind of were talking about this a little bit, but you're saying like, you feel really woo about it or like it's so dense and you just maybe weren't expecting that. If you like look at some of my favorite films, half of them are like really predictable, really feel good movies. The other half are this kind of movie where it's just like, what the fuck is going on here? Like it's throwing so much at you and it's just, mm-hmm. it's just uh more evocative of, it's just more evocative than anything. They just are trying to evoke feelings and instead of really trying to get you to like drill down on a, really concentrated narrative it's more about really just like you got to feel the art you know and 
I think when I was watching this for the very first time, I had never read the blurb. I had never mm. really read anything about it. I went in a hundred percent blind. This was a blind buy for me. I bought it at a Barnes and Noble, fifty uh, percent off sale, and I was like, you know, I like the long goodbye. I like the player. Let's check this one out. And I put it on, and I was like, is this the most captivating movie ever made? <laughs> and I specifically said that I didn't read the blurb because that's how they described it. They describe it as just one of the most compelling films of the 1970s. And I mean, Sissy Spacek, Shelley Duvall, mm -hmm. you cannot take your eyes off of them. And they just work so well together. They complement each other so well. And this is something that Altman talks about in his commentary for this film, which is one of the very few supplements that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about later on in the ep. But you can just tell that they worked really well together and they were like bouncing off each other very well. And it's also just weird and odd. And there's all this phallic imagery and these paintings that are just like very sexually evocative as well as like demonic in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm rambling really bad now, but like <laughs> it's, okay. it's one of those it's it's one of those films that evokes that in me. It's just like I just start overflowing with all of this love and praise and hype, but also just like a lack of understanding that confounds me. So yeah, I mean, I I find it to be just so freaking cool and exciting and a thrilling movie, even though it's just like about these two women um granted the name is three women but it's about these two women who are you know just kind of like aimlessly wandering through the desert trying to figure life out i think that captivating is the best word to use for it because it's like hypnotic in a sense like you and it's because i the the score initial i mean immediately reminded me so much of persona the kind of like like kind of just yeah. noises and it like it leads you to this feeling of uneasiness where you're like kind of on the edge of your seat like what what's going on what's happening like the music kind of puts your haunches up and you're waiting for the shoe to drop but then like the shoe doesn't drop which is like i think wonderful because then you're just like in this and which is what a dream feels like right uh, robert altman's famously said like he just kind of dreamed this up and like that's what he tried to put on screen there is that like uneasiness that even the most like mundane activities feel kind of scary in a dream like they feel sort of like not right because your feet aren't on solid ground and i think that like he's such an atmospheric director and like i think he nailed the atmosphere here in terms of just like feeling like you don't know where it's going and you have to just sort of flow kind of like water Ooh, another mm -hmm. uh, huge imagery that you kind of have to just flow with it you have to just sort of get in the lazy river and go down and like let the movie sort of take you where it's gonna go and i guess i'd love to talk about the performances in this movie because i i mean mm -hmm. i think all three of the women are great but obviously the two uh, the two main ones, Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek, are phenomenal. I love Shelley Duvall so much. But oh my God, Sissy Spacek blew my mind. Like the switch she makes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The switch when she's kind of becoming Millie, you know, you can interpret it however you want to. But when she is sort of taking on these new, these new personality traits, like it, it was like, 
it's just one of those she's just one of those wildly talented actors that like it's like I watch them and I'm like how are you that good because it's just like her face looks different to me and I know nothing has happened to her face I know nothing has changed and yet the way she looks at things the way she speaks everything is completely different than the beginning of the film and it's just like I could not believe how mind-blowing she was acting wise making that shift with Pinky pinky to mildred really uh it was just like i yeah that the performances were like mind-blowing but sissy specifically blew my mind the most yeah i mean she has to carry a large bulk of the film on her shoulders because we start mm-hmm. with her um we're like seeing we are entering the world of three women through pinky's eyes sissy's character and you know you say she like doesn't change her face at all. Like when she makes the switch from Pinky to Mildred and I think you're right, but like she does start doing like really different stuff with her body and with her voice. Like when you see her as Pinky, she's kind of tightened up. Like her shoulders are like really scrunched in. They're not like upright, like, you know, the average person gets when they get nervous, but when she becomes Mildred, they almost open up more and she like physically becomes relaxed. Mm. And, you know, you can definitely, as you said, interpret it however you want. I'll be very forthright. I uh, 100% interpret this film as like the fever dream of one individual and all of the three women are just different egos of that one person. So Mm. a little bit different from Persona, which we can talk about Persona a little bit later and how these two films connect. But when Pinky, again, starts to make that kind of uh, transition into Mildred and somewhat taking on Millie's persona (laughs) she also just changes the inflection of her voice she -hmm. becomes less mousy and less meek she gets very enunciative and just like projects a little bit more and yeah I mean Sissy Spacek is absolutely phenomenal I watched this movie back to back when I first saw it with Badlands and Mm. I just had like a Sissy Spacek double feature and she's she's freaking incredible i especially in this era i haven't watched a lot of late later sissy spacek but yeah no i mean she's amazing and i think this film also confirmed for me having only ever seen two other films starring shelly duvall that i think shelly duvall is one of my favorite actors of all time like she's just so magnetic i can't take my eyes off her when she's on the screen she is so cute. I wanted to beat everyone's ass being mean to her. I was like, stop being mean to her. That who? What's the name of the guy? There's like the one guy that lives in the apartment complex who she calls by name. I can't remember his name, but I wanted to punch him in the teeth because he was being so mean to sweet little Melly and Shelly Duvall by proxy. <laughs> and oh, it made me angry. Frank I feel or like Todd it's, or something? It's like not important, but she always yeah. is, she's always saying hi to him specifically and he's always ignoring her completely. He does a little um, cough. He goes, she goes, how's your cold? And he goes, Ugh. Yeah, and when, when when she's like, hey, guys, I can't make it tonight. And he goes, oh, I was really counting on you to be there. I was like, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight you. Uh, so I was very mad at that guy. Um, yeah, no, Sissy Spacek's great. She's wonderful in um, David Lynch's underrated, most underrated film, in my opinion, The Straight Story, which is his Disney movie that everyone pretends doesn't exist. But it's really beautiful, and Sissy Spacek is amazing in it. And... Um, She's been besties with with Lynch since like the seventies because her husband was his uh, production designer yeah. on Eraserhead. It's a whole thing. I love it. Yeah, she like helped um, him make like she put up some yeah, money for that movie, didn't she? She helped finance it for a couple of years because they ran out of money basically constantly. <sighs> Sissy SpaceX uh, the goat. Yeah, she's great. Um, 
No, I like that you mentioned an ego because sort of in that I, I listened to the first like 40-ish minutes of the Altman commentary. He does call at least there's like a whole part where he's saying the film is impressionistic to him. He thinks that impressions are like like he he likes to work in a more visual sense as opposed to like a literary sense. And he uses the phrase, he he kind of like says he thinks of Millie as the protagonist and the antagonist and -hmm. he thinks of pinky and willie as quote another ego of her so it's interesting that you use the phrase ego and it seems like robert altman who's you mentioned off mic has been very forthright about what he feels the film is about um i think it's interesting that he calls pinky and willie other egos of millie when when sort of at least at the start we think of pinky as maybe the protagonist the the vessel with which we're seeing the story through um yeah, I find that interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I listened to the commentary as well. Um, and yeah, he's very kind of open and honest about what he feels the film is about and what he like very much sees as the specifics of the plot and like where things start to connect and where things become a little bit more um, nuanced and opaque. But he's very adamant that Millie is like the person who through which he's very adamant that Millie is like the vessel through which this story is taking place. I Mm -hmm. actually don't see it that way. I see it as Willie's story, who is Mm. the character who's least on screen and has the least agency out of any of these women. And that's kind of like why I see it as her story and that Millie and um, Pinky are egos of hers or different personas of hers. And I feel like that actually ties it really back to the film we talked about last week, Persona, in that the, you know, um the opposite there would be that we believe i think we came down on the side that alma was the the real person if we were to go that route with an interpretation and that elizabeth Mm -hmm. was a manifestation um i think it's flopped here i think it's flipped here i think that uh willie is somebody who has lost a lot of agency has lost her voice uh figuratively and literally she hardly speaks in the film um Mm -hmm. And I think there's a little bit more that we could go into when it comes to the birth that happens at the end of the film. But, um, but yeah, no, like he, he talks a lot about how, you know, Millie is the person here and Pinky is like a childlike version of her. And then Willie is like a more matronly version of herself. Um, I don't know. Did you have any like kind of thoughts about like an interpretation or like a grasp or a hold on this? I know it's like still very nebulous for you. No, I definitely, like, I feel like much like Persona, how I said, like, the second watch is what helped me feel like I, like, because in between those second watches, I'd watched videos and read a lot about it and, like, I think took some space from it and then came back to it. And that's, and then, so this watch I did for the show felt, like, really clear to me. Um, And I think that, like, that's going to happen with three women is I just need some time with it to absorb it and then come back to it with ideas so that I can, like, try to find if my ideas fit into the puzzle. And if Mm -hmm. they don't, I'll watch it again and I'll try it all over again. Um, But I I do like, I like the, I mean, obviously, like, he, he kept referring to it as a stolen identity movie. So clearly he's trying to play with identity and um we watched we both watched a really interesting video it's one of the few videos on youtube that are like is exploring this film um i thought it was interesting and i'm not saying this is maybe my interpretation but i thought it was interesting that this person it was kind of similar to your theory was saying they think of the characters as like the same woman through the different periods of her life the childlike woman the the you know in her 20s 30s woman and then the the older in her 40s of the mother 
you know, I, I think that that's interesting. Like it's the same woman at different points in her life. I think that's an interesting take on it. I do think that like one character with the various aspects of them is interesting. I, um, it kind of, I don't think this fully fits, but you know, there's that old kind of, for, I don't even know if it's a phrase or if it's sort of a way of looking through characterizations of women, but the maiden mother crone of it all kind of, I kind of was getting that. Um, let me look it up so I don't miss, uh, yeah, no, I'm not very familiar a, with this. It's like a, a little, I think it's uh, rooted in neo-paganism, which I'm saying, but it's sort of like mm. an archetype of like the separate stages of a female life cycle, which is like, you start as the maiden, the virgin, the untouched young girl, you become a mother. And that is the, you go from a girl to a mother mm. and those, and then you're, or you're an old crone, you're a hag that no one wants. It's like mm. these pillars of archetypes that women fill throughout their lives i think it's obviously we are in 2023 and there's much more women can do with their with their lives yeah. and their um it's a little that, bit I think more nuanced a, these days yeah but i i like the idea of like exploring through these women like yeah like the roles p- women play the personas the masks they put on to the world outside of them because even like all of these the way they act, it seems very carefully manicured. Like, uh, especially, Millie's the biggest example. Like, she cares about makeup. She cares about hair. She cares about the way she looks. The decor of her home has to be exactly how she wants it. Don't leave the shoes out. Like, everything has to be pristine, exactly how she visualizes it in the magazines. Like, she has a mask she's creating, a image of herself that she's trying to project. And even Willie, who maybe gives the up the... um the vibe of like, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. She still has to project that. She still has to create that. She has to create this walls around her and the, and, and same, I don't know. I just feel like that this isn't a fully fleshed out idea, but like, I like the idea instead of like identity being stolen as Robert Altman was saying it of like, like as women, what are the kinds of identities we have to create for the world to understand us? Because if we are not fitting into a certain pillar of womanhood, um, how can someone maybe understand our story, understand what we're going through? I don't know. I don't know if that's a fully fleshed out idea, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like the identities of women that we have to take on to survive, I guess. No, I actually, I love that like a lot. And I think like, I think Altman boiling down the film to simply a story about identity theft, which sounds like weird. It sounds, it sounds so reductive. And it just reminds me of that terrible Jason Bateman, Melissa McCarthy movie, identity <laughs> theft from the mid 2010s. But oh like, God. no, I love what you're saying about how like it's, it's, it is bringing up these like really interesting questions about womanhood and what people expect out of women in our societies. And I especially like what you're talking about with Millie having this really manicured life and Willie maybe not having a really manicured life, but also projecting out a version of herself that she sees other people want to see from her or that she, fulfilling a role that she is supposed to fulfill. And then it makes me think about Pinky, who you don't mention, and how she seems to be the most free reign of any of these women's, uh, most free reign of any of these women, almost feral um, in a civilized sense, but like just a little bit more wild. There's that sequence at the very beginning where millie is walking her through her duties at the spa where they both work and she says all right we're gonna sink into the tub now to you know let the hot water you know make our bodies feel better and pinky just submerges her head face first into the water and it's just a little bit more of a wild child and that just kind of for me ties into like the idea that like these are women at three different stages of their life 
exactly what you're talking about as well. Um, but with Pinky being the naive child and not really truly caring what anybody thinks about her and just, it's like a lack of, it's uh, she loses her inhibitions because she doesn't, you know, see herself as having to fit that mold yet. If that mm. makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when we're, we're all, though I feel like before birth, even some types of people try to put their, their unborn babies into gendered boxes. Mm-hmm. We, we are all born as RuPaul says, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Like we all are born <laughs> uninhibited from, from things. And then, yeah, we have to morph these things as we get older. And I think there is that precious, precious time that if like, you can be shielded from it. There is this time when you are a child where like you don't have those societal pressures or those ideals of of masculinity or femininity thrust onto you. Like it's a really beautiful time that not many kids get, even get to have. Um, and so I was just even just thinking like, Willie is so like atypical to a mother, like who we would assume is maternal. Like she's super like kind of spooky looking and like, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that ties into the birth and that doesn't stay, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Oh, sorry. I'm again, I'm formulating a thought as I'm talking, mm-hmm. but like the You're idea working of through like, it live. when Edgar, when I'm working through it live, when Edgar dies, they get to be who they want to be. Like Millie immediately yeah. is like, not who we thought she was. Because, like, did she ever want to be that? She was being that person, desperately trying to be liked. And it it wasn't working. And she was so unfulfilled in that, even though she thought that's what she needed to be to find that fulfillment. But then as soon as Edgar dies, which I thought was really ambiguous, I kind of had to see it. I don't know. I felt it was a little like, hmm. Um, But then Robert Altman has said he's buried underneath the tires. So Robert Altman's out here being like, yeah, he's dead. Who cares? But, like, when um, when when he dies, like, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that, like, um pinky gets to be who she once was she gets to go back to normal quote unquote mm-hmm. and like you even see janice rule i want to call out as phenomenal as willie yes. like in her face you see the calmness in her in that final shot like she's like a totally different woman now that she's uninhibited by the pressures that men are putting on to her and i wonder if that ties to the baby being a boy you know because it's very specific that they're like he's a boy and he doesn't survive. And like, this is going to be so bad sounding. Like maybe that was a win. Maybe she didn't mm-hmm. need another man in her life t- forcing a role onto her. Because if that baby had survived, motherhood is forced onto her. That is mm-hmm. that is her life now. That is her role. And now that this baby is not there, she gets to live how she wants. I don't know. I feel like there's also this idea of like men imposing the roles onto women that yeah. like, it's really just like highlighted in the last like minute and a half of the movie, but I do think it's, I like it. Sorry. I'm like figuring out my thoughts as I'm talking. No, um, it's perfect. This but is it's great a great podcasting. movie. It's a great movie because it makes you want to figure it out, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I do interpret the stillborn birth of the baby boy at the very end as the signifier of Edgar's death. Like, I think that like, that mm. is like the, I think that's the stand in on camera for Edgar being killed. Uh, is that this, this baby boy comes into the world already cold, already unalive. Um, and yeah, I mean, the amazing Janice rule moves to this film almost completely silent and gives some of the best nonverbal acting um that like probably came out of the 70s she has this one sequence where she's uh reflected back off of a window looking at pinky 
um, after that she has tried to commit suicide, which is something that you would only gleam from reading about this film. It's not exactly clear in the film that she's actually trying to end her life. Not to me, at least. Um, yeah, no, I think it's it's kind of, it's a little strange of a, of a shift, yeah. Yeah, so what basically, hopefully our listeners have seen the film, but after an argument between Pinky and Millie, Pinky jumps off the railing of the second floor of their apartment building into the pool. I interpret this as just a scene just to get attention and to Mm -hmm. cause an uproar but what she's tried to do is kill herself and the bystanders who live at this apartment save her and we just see this glimpse into like willie as she's like kind of having a mini breakdown at the thought of losing this person and i kind of see it as like the real motherly instincts of that woman because at the end of the film all three of these women come together to form a family unit Mm mm-hmm and Willie takes on this matronly grandmother role. And yeah, as you say, like in that final scene of the film, you can just see in her face, all of the tension is gone. All of the worries in the world, all of the worries in her world have just completely washed away. And I think the first hint though, that we're going to get to there is in that sequence where you see Willie like fearful of losing Pinky's life. Mm-hmm. Um, because eventually she comes to like be pinky's grandmother in a weird roundabout way through like this kind of like magical surreal uh i don't know how to put it into words but there's just like this the final moment of the film when they come together all three of these women after having supposedly killed edgar is very surreal and weird and trippy but yeah willie i find this just kind of goes back to what i was saying with willie being like the person through all this is happening i believe it's all happening in her head that it's you know it is dream logic in the film because the film is a dream but it's a dream Mm -hmm. taking place for willie um and yeah i just really i think it is plainly and simply the lack of agency that willie seems to have in this film and then it being somewhat achieved at the end is why i kind of see it all from willie's perspective I think that's an interesting take on it. I mean, gosh, that, yeah, her performance is really, really amazing. Her, the birth scene, I could not believe how long that scene was. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God. I mean, that might be, I mean, I have not experienced birth, nor have I been in a room of birth, but, um, you know, I feel like in, I was, I, Rachel watched it with me. I turned and joked. I was like in Grey's Anatomy or something. They'll be like, ah, oh, it's out. Like, it's like one push (laughs) and the baby's out. This is like, it forces you to experience this with her. Like it is, it is, um, I think uncomfortable by design almost that like you have to listen to this, 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 the screams and the push and the pain of going through childbirth because he like, even though he's cutting around, like we're seeing, you know, we're seeing Pinky listening. We're seeing, you know, we're, we're, we're moving around visually audibly. Like we are having to sit within this experience. And I find that like, yeah, Janice rule killed that. It's, I can't imagine how hard that was to film. Like, it's just like, I was sitting there trying to figure out how they filmed it. I was like, <laughs> how, where's this baby coming from? Like, do they have a hole in the bed? Like what's happening? Um, and it was just, I, yeah, what a what a shocking scene in like such an interesting way. And I actually I'm curious. This is like there's obviously many things that popped questions into my brain that like are things I'm like, I don't understand that. Why do you think Pinky refrains from getting help and then like that slap is such an intense moment? I wasn't sure how to read that. And I was like, I wanted to know if you had a take on that, actually. Um a loose one, I would say. I feel 
so we've already seen at this point that Pinky and Millie have somewhat swapped places. Mm-hmm. After Pinky has her suicide attempt and slips into a coma, she wakes up and she takes on this uh, more promiscuous, more assertive persona that has been populated by Millie for the first half of the film. And as Pinky's in her coma, Millie starts to slip into this more shy and meek persona that Pinky has um, occupied for most of the film. And so then that happens, uh, and we're living with that for about 30, 40 minutes, I don't know. But in that sequence, I feel like the trauma of witnessing this birth is when Pinky regresses back into her original state, becomes more childlike, and just goes back to how she originally was, like you uh, kind of led with up front Mm -hmm. of, of our conversation. But yeah, that's kind of what I see is happening there. And then the slap is just like the... Uh, it's the confirmation that uh, Millie is now going to be the domineering mother of this relationship because as we've been like kind of talking about the final sequence when the three women are a full family unit um, Millie has a very like cold domineering Mm -hmm. uh, motherly nature about her so yeah that's that's kind of like my interpretation of that moment um whether or not it's true or good or should be yours is up to you <laughs> no but... it makes sense to me i was I mean, and then she even calls her let me check my my mom mm-hmm. that that was so funny because rachel and i were on the couch together and when she was like yeah let me go get my mom me and rachel both like whipped our heads at each other and we're like what <laughs> like we both were so this confused happened. yeah we were like when did that happen uh which is so funny which like this uh, i don't think this is really part of the interpretation at all i think that with all of these films that we talk about the, the trio if you will of identity two women looking at each you know that yeah. the, the trilogy of that I, I did write my notes like they get progressively kind of gayer every movie yes. like we start with persona we get a little bit more fruity here and then like boom they're having sex in Mulholland drive um because the op- the beginning of this this is a terrible transition of this but like the way pinky is like looking at mildred had the huge at least the, the queer vibes that i identified with as a young woman where i was seeing these beautiful older women and i was like i want to be you but i also want to kiss you so bad Mm -hmm. but i mostly want to be you but like also i could kiss you if that's okay like it's like that vibe of just like and i feel like with a lot of um this is so weird with a lot of like older sapphic media uh, desert hearts is a film i mentioned in my top 10 the book of that i actually don't like the book that much because it's really weird and it gets into like the whole like do sapphic women just really want to be with their mom? Like the Electra complex of it all? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So all I'm saying is that I, as it happened, I was like, how come every vaguely sapphic thing ends with someone being a mom of another one? I was just thinking about the maternal aspect of the like vibes. This is a terrible thought. You could probably get it. It makes no sense. But I was like, no. I was very much just like, um, I was getting such kind of queer vibes from them in the beginning, knowing it probably wasn't going to actually happen because it's the seventies. So then by the end of the time they were now being mother and daughter, I was like, Oh, I feel like that's a theme I notice a lot in like kind of older sapphic media. It's like, it's, you know, a whole like tentpole of the all girls school genre, which is the teacher, the Mm -hmm. motherly figure with a younger woman. Like, I feel like that happens a lot. This like maternal, energy that kind of flows through possible sexual sapphic relationships like i don't know i just found that to be i was like what again not a really good complete thought but yeah i mean like i think there's absolutely some 
sexual tension underlying the relationship between Pinky and Millie, especially at the beginning. Um, yeah, I think the that, beginning is especially. I think that could be potentially a product of it being a uh, male-produced uh, piece of art um, a little bit. I don't know if that's actually the case or anything. I know Altman brought in a woman to help co-write the script. Mm-hmm. Famously, uh, I have it here, uh, this woman, uh, Pat Resnick, also wrote 9 to 5. Uh, starring Dolly Parton. What? Yeah, so oh this was co-written God. by the co-writer for Nine to Five. Okay, I love that. Yeah, I love that. But yeah, I I mean I think that the psychosexual there's that word again tension kind of goes away as you're talking about when it gives way to like the mother, more uh, mother daughter relationship mm-hmm. that we see develop in the later half of the film. But you know this isn't really what I was talking about, but it gets back to something you were talking about with like edgar and the men imposing the men in the story Mm -hmm. imposing these roles upon the women or at least their presence is such that the women feel like they have to fulfill these roles that have been assigned to them by the society that is dominated yes by men um but we live in a society (laughs) oh no um but there's that there's those paintings at the beginning of the film that persist throughout uh, all of three women. And there's a lot of phallic imagery in those paintings. Um, And they're also demonic uh, in some regards. Like they look somewhat sinister. They look somewhat evil. They look like a painting of demons sometimes. And I just, I just wrote down while I was taking some notes about this film, I wrote Greek mythos. And then I draw arrows in my notes and it goes arrow to goddess, arrow to phallic imagery, arrow to men, and then arrow to evil. Mm. So I was just wondering, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the evil presence of men in three women <laughs> and maybe the force that they're exerting. I mean, yeah, I, you know, as a woman, I'm aware of like uh, how it feels to sort of feel like uh men in this in society and 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 then the world feel owed to your presence feel owed to your existence um and so i i do think that that's i like the idea of the paintings feeling like a reminder of this presence a reminder like it's like and especially since willie is painting them she feels like the one who is most oppressed maybe by men because Mm -hmm. you know like we we can make the assumption that like edgar is obviously the father of this baby and she's carrying around this boy inside of her she's carrying around this like it is such a visual physical representation of you know and not to say like i don't want to make assumptions maybe willie wants a baby at some point but like it seems like she at least the vibes i got is like she does not want this baby um but she does cry when she gets it i don't know it's very complicated like i don't really know how to make that assumption on willie's part i guess uh speaking of her as if she's a real person in my life um but yeah like she has this like really real physical like weight on her that is that and so i think it's it it feels really evocative that she's the one drawing these paintings maybe letting some of that trauma out letting some of those feelings Mm -hmm. out of like this oppression that she's feeling Mm -hmm. um that same video the reason why i found that video is because i googled what are the what are the paintings in the pools mean you know like not not something you're supposed to do with these kinds of movies but i do like to see what other people might have thought and there's not a lot of talk about these pool paintings online in a way that i was like why is no one talking about this? But I found that great video and I kind of liked that. Um, I liked that person's interpretation as well. The idea that like 
um, a lot of her Willie's art is reptilian. She paints a lot of snakes. Mm-hmm. The people have the snake skin seemingly. And this like visual of like snakes are creatures that are um, quiet, but deadly. They shed their skin to become a new this like, And that sort of like plays into the idea of identity and change and like shedding yourself of the, aspects of you that don't serve you anymore and moving into a new part of your life with less weight on your shoulders like i like that idea of like leaning into the reptilian nature of it all um yeah but i'm not sure like i'm so like her i think that out of anything in this whole film the art is what confounds me the most both the murals I do agree there's like, you know, the pregnant, I think I need to just look at them because I know there's a pregnant character. Then there's obviously the character with the, with a large penis. Like there's like that, like that's clearly the, yeah. um, Like I I, kind of just want to look at them wide and see if I can like figure out the picture because also her paintings that she shoots. I'm like, what does that mean? Like destroying her art, destroying this piece of her. Like I think the art aspect is actually what's the biggest question mark in my brain. Like, I don't even know if I figured out an answer for it yet. No, uh, yeah, you mentioned that video. Uh, I saw it a couple of weeks ago. It's a great video. I'll link to it in the show notes. But yeah, there's a lot of talk about, and I think this is the third time I've said this, but the phallic imagery. So like the big dicks that are painted on. The guns. Yeah, the guns. Uh, and, you know, just like the, uh, just the very obvious like sinisterness or um, evil nature that some of these figures take on they're creepy they're eerie and i i mean i know i just wrote in my mints like i know i just wrote in my notes like you know men evil question mark but like (laughs) edgar is like the only man of prominence in this story Mm -hmm. and he has relationships with all three women and you know you were connecting guns and snakes he's got this just mind-boggling crazy fucking quote in the in the about two-thirds of the way through the movie uh where he says i would rather face a thousand crazy savages than one well-trained woman with a gun um and i find that just like so foreboding and like because like i don't know how they kill edgar but maybe they kill him with a gun but he's not just facing one quote unquote crazy woman with a gun i don't think these women are crazy i think that they have uh responded aptly to the circumstances that have they <laughs> have the been dealt in their life in. yeah exactly um but yeah like i just think it's really interesting that he says that and that he also carries on relationships with each each of the women in the film who in as i've stated and made very clear and i think robert altman has as well is the same woman but that is almost like it's almost reductive to like kind of go down that um thought rabbit hole because at the end of the day this is a surreal piece of art and it's not really about what's happening underneath the surface it's like actually what's being put on the screen visually um yeah i know that's like a lot to throw at you well no as soon as you started talking and then i kind of chimed in with gun immediately i was like oh my god because yeah like i feel like guns have been used as phallic symbols in films for ages especially in the old westerns there's like a great in the celluloid closet they have a great thing about how Howard Hawks's Red River, which we could cover one day because it's in the collection, oh. has a whole scene with at least one queer actor in it uh, where they're sort of just like, oh, yeah, let me see your pistol. How do you shine that? Like, it's a very homoerotic <laughs> scene where they're talking about their pistols. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like absolutely he's using the gun as a phallic symbol in this. But then, like, I was just thinking, as you were saying, like, the the power that has of the 
of, you know, this is obviously speaking in very binary terms, I think, especially how mm. Robert Altman was probably thinking about gender in 1977. Like, it's the man and the woman. Like, I understand that, like, what I'm saying is a very binary thing. But the idea of, like, the woman, Shelley, and even Sissy later in the film, wielding this, like, vis- this item of phallic power, this, this like, item of masculinity. There's a power in that. And you think you see the empowerment in those women. And that's, I think it makes the most sense that they kill him with a gun. Um you know, we'll never know. Um, oh, wait, yeah, I just remember. There's power in that. Oh, what? There's that line from the Coca-Cola delivery boy at the end where he says, strange. Oh. He was always so good with guns. So it was definitely a gun. We're like, we're we're hitting the nail on the head here. You're so right. <laughs> I wonder if they staged it as like an accident, like an accidental suicide, like it accidentally went off while he was cleaning it or something. Yeah. And like, furthermore, like, brought down by the own phallic tool of his own masculinity like oh gosh it's kind of brilliant yeah yeah no it's freaking (laughs) smart um yeah no i just yeah i find this just to be such a crazy film because like as we've discovered through our conversation here it just takes you in so many windy directions with the story and the way that you can unpack it Uh, these are the kinds of movies i love taking in and i love talking about obviously but I got to know, like, why you picked this film and not Mulholland Drive or any other film. Like, we don't have to go too deep into connections to Persona because we've touched on it here and there. But, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this relates back to that film in any way that you can talk about. But, like, why are we talking about three women at the end of our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, like, I... You know, Mulholland Drive is the obvious pick for me, and I, I, I think I'm gonna wait. I want to wait till the time is right because I know it's like one that you're gonna have to revisit. And I got it for I, my birthday. I, oh, there you just go. a couple days ago. I gotta get the 4K. Um, but like the, I, I mean, the, the big reason was I wanted to click pick a movie I've never seen before. I think a lot for a lot of these kind of early ones, especially the pick I'm thinking about for the end of the episode, um, are films I haven't seen because I want I want to explore the Criterion Collection more. I really do. So I really really. Like, in terms of like Mulholland Drive versus Three Women, I just wanted to watch a movie I'd never seen before, and um, and yeah, and like again, those those three movies are always set in the same breath with one another in terms of films about femininity and identity and the intersection of those identities and how they become the same person or become separate people or become, it's you know they're all I feel like all of those films are also very impressionistic and very kind of ooh you have to just sort of get in the wavelength of them and they're dense and they're interesting and there's like. 50 different ways 50 different people can interpret them and so I think those were that that was definitely the reasoning why I was like three women feels like the natural progression to go to from persona um and yeah that was I mean that was really the big reason was I wanted to watch a movie I'd never seen before this was a bit of a white whale I was like I gotta see three women I finally have to just do it and I'm glad I did because I'm I'm looking forward to more watches and letting it deepen much like persona and Mulholland both did for me. Like those are both movies that like deepened the more I engaged with them and even already talking to you, like I'm like loving it more and I'm excited to return to it because like through conversation, it's just like letting my brain spill out a bit has been really, really nice to like, I guess understand quote unquote the movie more. And so yeah, I love movies like this and I feel like that's what I'm looking forward to with this podcast is having movies where we can just like, get into it um so yeah that's kind of why we're talking about three women this week well yeah i mean i i love it a lot i mean 
do you have a star rating for this movie? Were you able to come down on one or is this still <laughs> one of those just like hearts and I'll maybe uh, rate it later films? It's definitely a heart. Definitely a heart. I definitely liked it. The thing is I got so scared when I ended the movie and I went, did I not like this? Like I got very scared. <laughs> um, but discussing it with you and like thinking about it more as, as, as it does with other films, uh, that are as dense as this I my appreciation and love for it is growing the more I'm exploring with it and so I promise everyone I will not be like this every week I do feel like right now I don't know what to rate it because I I think it requires more watches of me I think it requires more of my attention before I feel like I can subjectively rate it I'm sure it'll end up being a five-star movie like <laughs> many of these other movies I love um, but I I do I need it I need to watch it again I need to I need to like take a month off and then watch it in like April and see how it makes me feel. And then maybe like take six months off and watch it in like December or something and see how it makes me feel. Like I, I think this film deserves more of my time, I guess. So that makes sense. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And your rating, we all know, cause it's in your top 10. Yeah. Yeah. No, for our first movie, when I reviewed it on Letterboxd, I just said, you know, there's no point in me hiding this rating. So it had a five star. And then my rating for three women on Letterboxd was literally just, you know, what's up. <laughs> five stars and a big fat heart um yeah this is like definitely i can already tell going to be like a perennial watch for me mm. um i only saw it literally a month ago i think i'm like celebrating a month like today or tomorrow have having seen this film for the first time and it yeah it's just so much fun to put on and just like stew in and having a conversation with you about it has just been even more fun it is one of those films that is just so exciting to talk about and hear what other people thought and what they liked and didn't like. And like, what's up with Willie and like <laughs> are Millie and Pinky the same person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, no, I, yeah. Five stars from me. I look forward to you logging this again in six months as a five-star film, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I freaking love this thing. I will say, like, I I know at least at the surface, just because it's given me so much to chew on, I definitely, it's like a high-tier almond for me, I think. Like, I was scared that I didn't like it, and I was, but I think I, I think I do. Like, I think it's just kind of, I can see it living in my brain for a bit, and I think it's going to rattle in there for, for a very long time. Um, so it's probably tied with Nashville for me, but my favorite Altman so far. Mm, yeah, this is my favorite Altman for sure. Oh, for sure. And in terms of letters and voicemails, we have none for this week. But as always, if you want to email us about Persona, about Three Women, about the double feature we just did, uh, or maybe what we're starting with next week for our next double feature, uh, you can email us at thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. And speaking of next week, it is the slate is wiped clean. We are beginning a new duo of films, and I am picking this film and i've been so nervous all week being like what if i pick a bad one um so my little sort of explainer before i say the name and the spine and everything is um this is a film by a director who i want to watch more of who one of their films was present in my top 10 Okay. And this is the only film from this director that is in the uh, collection that I haven't seen yet. So I was like, I'm going to knock this one out. Hmm. So next week, I'm taking you back to 1951, baby. We're going, <laughs> we're going a little back <laughs> to spine number 396 with Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole. I have never heard of this movie. <laughs> the heck is this like is this like 
Sweet Smell of Success Part Two. Like this sounds great. I've <laughs> never seen a Kirk Douglas movie, and I've never seen this film specifically. But I like Billy Wilder. I'm super stoked. Same and same. I I love Billy Wilder. I've seen his big kind of movies. I've seen The Apartments, Sunset Boulevard, Double Indemnity, Some Like It Hot. Uh, the last two are in the collection and i own them and i've i love those two movies and this is the third billy wilder that's in the criterion collection and i've never seen it i had the opportunity in theaters a couple months ago ended up not being able to go see it uh, and i was so sad that i didn't get to catch it in theaters and uh yeah it just kind of came it's been on my mind because i missed it and um we talked about billy wilder in our top 10 and i thought like maybe this will be a fun one to watch together um because i've never seen it you've never seen it so we get to have a really fresh perspective i guess on it um so yeah billy wilder's 1951 ace yeah it makes for a very (laughs) uh exciting and different third episode i'm super excited i'm looking forward to this mackenzie I'm glad you like it. I was between it and another movie that I will save maybe for my for a, a, my next pick. But um, yeah, I've also never seen a Kirk Douglas movie either. So very new. Yeah, I've almost I've almost seen a couple of movies by him because I went on a uh, Stanley Kubrick kick a while back. But alas, I did not get to those. Mm. One of those films is in the collection. That's Path of Glory. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. It looks like Spike Lee maybe loves this movie because there's a ton of stuff on the website of uh a spike lee on ace in the hole and one of the features is like an afterword by spike lee is one of the supplements on the criterion um so that interests me because obviously he's a filmmaker who deals with social commentary a lot so yeah well i'm gonna have to go to the fort worth public library this weekend and get my copy because it's not streaming on the channel folks so please support your local library support your local video stores and if you have to support your local barnes and noble snag your copy or maybe just rent it on your preferred platform so next week ace in the hole we're going super left field i feel like from persona <laughs> and three women like we are going total opposite direction yeah. it might be a little bit easier to talk about <laughs> maybe it'll be less cerebral i say that yeah. about billy wilder one of the greatest film writers of all time true um <laughs> so next week billy wilder's ace in the hole spine number 396 it's going to be exciting. It's going to be great. Again, if you have anything to say about this or any of the films we've covered, the Criterion Connection at gmail.com. We'll share it on the show. Until next time. See you next week on the Criterion Connection. listening to the criterion connection hosted by ian Layden and mackenzie wilkes you can reach us at the criterion connection at gmail.com and follow the show on instagram at criterion connection you can also find ian and mackenzie on letterbox to see what they're watching using the links in the show notes the criterion connection is edited and mixed by me ian the show is not affiliated with the criterion collection or janice films thanks so much for listening see you next week that up no you're good you're good i did i